Amen, church family, is we have been walking for the past 10 weeks through the book of Daniel. Uh, at, at Central to the book of Daniel is, is, is really how, how do we walk with God in the midst and living in the midst of what are trying times, living in the midst of what feels like an exile in a hostile land. And at the core of our ability to do that as believers, as those saved by grace through faith, at the core of our ability to do that it is ultimately going to mean there are days where it's going to seem that the world is chaotic. There are days where it's going to seem that God is distant or silent. And you and I are going to have to make a decision about how much we will truly rest upon and believe and live out of His Word. Amen. And it's passages like the one we come to today that when we really understand it, are going to display with brilliant technicolor that every last drop of His Word comes to pass and is true, and we can trust His Word because He's trustworthy. So I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, you'll remember as we moved last week into Daniel 10, Daniel 10, 11, and 12 are really all one unit. Daniel 10 is the introduction to the vision. Daniel 11 through chapter 12, verse 3 is the content of the vision. And then the rest of chapter 12 are, are the footnotes or the, or the summation, the closing everything out from the vision. And this vision has to do, according to the angel speaking to Daniel, this vision has to do with the things that will take place for the people of Israel in the latter times. Now, having said that, let me tell you, today may be a little bit of a different kind of sermon because this is one of the most unique passages of Scripture. It may feel a little like a history lesson for a good chunk of it because it's important as we walk through these verses that you understand where it's actually happened. Because in the following verses we're going to look at, there are approximately 135 different prophecies that have been fulfilled in history already. It is extremely unique in what is there, and so we're going to work our way through it the best that we can, and if all of a sudden I look at the clock and realize I've cost you lunch, we're just going to drop down and thank the Lord. <laughs> so here we go. Uh, Daniel chapter 11, verse 1, in the first year of Darius the Mede. Now, this is the angel talking. Remember last week, Daniel has this vision. He sees, he sees God uh, hovering over the, the Tigris River. An angel comes and picks him up, and an angel's talking to him. And this is now the angel talking to Daniel. And this is what he says. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. Now, pause just a moment. By encouragement, I, I arose to inspire Darius with confidence, to give hope, to fill him with courage, to be a refuge, an assistance, a source of security, a protection for him. And you'll remember last week that we got to peer behind the veil a little bit, and, and we, we, were, we came face to face with this reality that there is a real spiritual war between uh, angels and demons, that there, there are real demonic forces that are working and moving at, at every level of power, of culture, and of influence in our world. And most of us are completely unaware because it's not like we see, we don't have spiritual glasses to see what's all going on, and, and that can be incredibly intimidating. But, but just as there are forces of evil at work in the world, so the Lord and His forces are at work. 
And the angel says, I stood up. This is, remember, the vision's in the third year of Cyrus, so this is two years prior. In the first year of Darius, I stood up to encourage him, to strengthen him, to be a protection. By the way, what happened in the first year of King Darius? Or not King, but just Darius. What happened in the first year? A bunch of leading governing officials got really hacked off that Daniel was so stunning, even in old age, that they tricked the king into signing a document that would exterminate Daniel and any other Jew who prayed to the one true God. And, Dan and Darius's heart realized, if you remember how bad that situation was, he was desperate, he cried out, and ultimately God preserves Daniel, and those are, could it be that part of the reason Daniel had such favor in Darius's eyes is because God was watching out for Daniel? and sent his forces there. By the way, we don't know if Darius is one of two figures, either a man named Gubaro, the governor of Babylon, or it's possibly another name for Cyrus. And if it perhaps is Cyrus, another name for Cyrus, what happened in the first year of Cyrus's reign? He signed a decree to send all the Jews back to Jerusalem. Could it be what God was working and moving and orchestrating beside scenes? Church family, we need to understand with absolute truth why there is a battle raging from the forces of evil behind the scenes. So God is working out His purposes for His people, even though there is demonic opposition at the highest levels of human culture and power. Chapter, verse 1 is a good reminder of that. Now time for the sermon. And now I tell you the truth. Now, here's what he's going to say. So I'm going to read you a verse at a time, and then I'm going to tell you where it was fulfilled. And I'm going to remind myself not to walk too much because I need my notes to do this. And now I tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain more riches than all of them. And as soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Now, here's what would happen. After Cyrus, there would be three kings, his son Cambyses, uh, then a, a false king named Smyrtus. By false king, we mean it's, it's debated as to whether or not Smyrtus was Cyrus's son Smyrtus or somebody who was faking being Cyrus's son. That's a whole story in and of itself. Sermon doesn't give time for it today. You can go look it up on Wikipedia. And then Darius I, three kings. And then the fourth king would be Xerxes I, who we know from history is marked by great wealth, and he, he roused massive campaigns against Greece, ultimately to be defeated in 480. It's very possible that Xerxes I is seen in the first two chapters of Esther. And ultimately, these, these attacks by Xerxes will earn Persia the hatred of the Greek empire. And then just like that, says in verse 3, a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. Now, what's that a reference to? Well, there's a few more kings after Xerxes in Persia, but as far as this prophecy is related, they're irrelevant. Persia's done. Persia's gotten the people of God back into the promised land, just like God's Word said they would go 70 years later. Uh, the people of Persia have provided the money to get the temple restored and worship going 70 years later, just like God said it would. And now the people of Persia the, the, the ram, the two-horned ram of chapter 8, have now gone after the goat who runs faster than the, than, than so fast he doesn't touch the ground of chapter 8, and Greece has now set its sights. And, and who will arise? Who will, who will unify the Greek kingdom and come? A mighty king by the name of Alexander the Great, who in less than 10 years will take the Greek empire and conquer from his hometown of hometown in Greece, all the way to India. 
And then on his way home in Babylon, he will get a fever and he will die. It says, and a mighty king will arise and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. In fact, none stood against him. But as soon as he is arisen, the kingdom will be broken up and parceled out towards the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. We know Alexander the Great dies at, the, dies at a young age of, of 33. I love how one person said, historians have written volumes about Alexander the Great. God saw fit to just give him one verse. His kingdom will be parceled out at the height of his power. It will be parceled out, not to his descendants, it said. Did you know Alexander had a half-brother who was deemed mentally incompetent and is murdered shortly after Alexander's death? He also had two sons. His eldest son was illegitimate and therefore unacceptable as an heir. His youngest son, Alexander, who was born just after his death, is also murdered. And his kingdom, the Greek empire, will be divided out in four portions based on the compass. Macedonia and Greece go to General Cassander, Thrace and Asia Minor to Lysimachus, Syria and Mesopotamia, that would be Babylon and Persia to Seleucus, and Egypt and Israel go to Ptolemy. And just like God's word, so history moves forward. Then it says this, then the king of the south will grow strong. Now let me give you a reference from this point forward for the rest of today. The king of the south refers to the, the, the Ptolemaic dynasty. That's, that's the, the Greek kings over Egypt and at the beginning Israel. The king of the north refers to the Seleucid kingdom. And that will be Syria, Mesopotamia, and will eventually come to conquer and be over Israel. So the south, Egypt, Ptolemies, the north, Syria, the Seleucids. Because I'm going to try not to lose you as we read these verses. Here we go. Then the king of the south, that's Ptolemy I, will grow strong. And along with one of his princes or commanders who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. And his dominion will be great. Here's what we know from history. Ptolemy the one, uh, Ptolemy the first uh, comes to power over Egypt and over in the Seleucid kingdom, Seleucus I, who under Alexander was a lesser general but was appointed ruler over Babylon, he is attacked by a man named and uh, Antigonus, forcing him to flee and seek safety under Ptolemy, who will help him regain his kingdom. When Antigonus is defeated in 312 at Gaza, Seleucus will return to power, and when he returns to power, having for a time served Ptolemy, when he returns to power, he will rule over a territory larger than anything Ptolemy controls. Hence, his ascendancy will be greater. Then it says, after some years, they will form an alliance. That is, the south and the north, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful agreement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will she remain with his power, but she will be given up, along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her, as well as he who supported her in those times. Here's what's going to happen. Some, some years go by, and Ptolemy II comes to the throne. And there's constant tension and war between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And in order to achieve peace, he's going to send his daughter, Bernice, to marry the current kingdom of the Seleucid, the king of the Seleucid kingdom, Antiochus II. They're going to form an alliance, and they're going to have a son, and the idea is their son will be a, 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 an, a, the heir to the empire. But here's the problem. Antiochus II is already married to a woman named Laodicea, who's now thrown to the side. 
And as she's thrown to the side, time's going to go on. Ptolemy II will reign. It's going to be under his rule that the Hebrew Old Testament's translated to the Greek and the Septuagint. He will die, and shortly after his death, Antiochus II, not fearing the wrath of his father-in-law, will chunk Bernice and take Laodicea back, who is extremely angry and bitter. And she will conspire, and she will have Antiochus, Bernice, and their child all murdered. Just like Scripture says. But one of the descendants of her line, talking about Bernice, will, rely, will arise in her pl his place. That will mean Ptolemy II, her brother, says will arise in place and come, uh, he will come against the northern army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. He will deal with them and display great strength. Also their gods and their metal images and their precious vessels of, vessels of silver and gold he will take in captivity to Egypt. And on his part, he will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but return to his own land. Here's what we know from history. Ptolemy II will go up. He will lay siege to the capital of Antioch. He will find Laodicea, put her to death. He will seize a bunch of gods and idols. In fact, he takes many of the idols and statues that the Persian ruler Cambyses stole from Egypt. Ptolemy III brings him back and is viewed as a hero by the Egyptians. And for a time, he will enter into a peace treaty with the next king of the Seleucids, Seleucus II, and he will begin to look elsewhere. And he will refrain from attacking. At some point in there, Seleucus will try to come against Egypt, but will return to his land. Then it says this, his sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter, the king of the north, will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, his heart will, the king of the south, his heart will be proud, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than previous. And after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. So here's what we know from history. Seleucus III will come against, uh, uh, Seleucus III will reign briefly, and then followed by him, Antiochus III, we know as Antiochus the Great, will attack, will attack both the area of Israel, Palestine, and Egypt. And, and, and come in for control. The king of the south will raise up an army. Uh, Ptolemy IV will, will launch a counterattack with 70,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and not to be underestimated, 73 elephants. And he will take on Antiochus' 62,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 102 elephants. And Ptolemy will win a massive victory that will swell his heart with pride, and it's reported that he would go to slaughter 17,000 of Antiochus' troops, just like the Scripture says. Now, he doesn't totally defeat the king of the north. Some 15 years later, in 202 B.C., Ptolemy IV has just died the year prior, Antiochus will launch Another attack into the kingdom of Ptolemy, into, into the, the Holy Land in Egypt. Uh, Ptolemy V is only a child, and ultimately by 201 BC, the king of the north has conquered all the way down to Gaza. And then it says this, now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. 
The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city. The forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes again will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. Here's what's going to happen at this time. At this time, Philip V, king of Macedon, native insurgents within Egypt who don't like the Ptolemy rulers, and, and some of the Jews in the Holy Land are going to be set on overthrowing, on joining with the king of the north, the Seleucid king, to attack the Ptolemy rulers, and they're going to work with Antiochus the Great to overthrow Egyptian rule. And notice what it says, they will lift them up in order to fulfill the vision. They're going to do this in fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, they may not be aware they're fulfilling this prophecy, but that's ultimately what they're doing. They're going to go down and attack Egypt. Egypt's going to, under the lead of General Scopus, is going to be defeated ultimately in battle, but still have some power over, over uh, the region of Judah and, and Judea and Jerusalem and, and will punish those uh, who helped fight. It says that the king of the north will come up uh, with, a, with a siege ramp. So General Scopus is going to fight the armies of the Seleucids. And in 199 BC, he will suffer a major loss and retreat to Sidon on the Phoenician coast. You're familiar with Sidon from some of our Old Testament studies. That's the land of Jezebel. The Syrians are going to besiege Sidon, they're going to, and, suffer, and, and Scopus is going to surrender in 198. And here's the key about all of this. It makes the statement, but he, meaning Antiochus the Great, will do as he pleases. No one can stop him. He will stay for a time in the beautiful land. It is at this point that the Jews, the people of Israel, and the land of Israel now passes from the control of the king of the south, the Ptolemaic kings, to that of the Seleucid kings. A major shift has. It's been under civil war all this time, but now a major shift has, has taken place. And so it says in verse 17, he will set his, being Antiochus, his face with the, with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. And here's the proposal of peace. He will also give the daughter of woman to, to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. So here's what he's going to do. He's won the land he wants. He's going to enter into peace. He's going to offer his daughter Cleopatra, not the famous one you're thinking of, one, probably the one she was named after, but he's going to offer his daughter Cleopatra to Ptolemy V, who's still young, in order to broker peace. He's going to think this will secure him peace. But just like the Scriptures say, she's going to be more in love with her husband, not her dad, and she's going to support her husband against her dad. Just like it says, she will not take a stand for Antiochus, but or be on his side. So here's what he's going to do. He will turn in this time of peace, he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. He's going to begin to capture some of the islands around the Mediterranean, but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for scorn. So he, being the king of the north, will face toward the fortress of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Here's what's going to happen. Antiochus, having peace with or seeming peace with Egypt is going to attack around the Mediterranean, and the up-and-coming Roman Republic is going to send their general to attack Antiochus. He's going to rout him at Thermopylae in 191. Uh, he's going to ultimately take him all the way back to Smyrna in 190. And in 188, the Romans are going to force him to sign a, a, a treaty, and Antiochus is going to find himself defeated, 
poor, broke, and unable to sustain any more war. So what is he going to do? He's going to go back into his empire to the fortress. Notice that use of fortress, which would be the temple of Zeus to try to plunder the riches of the temple. He would also send people to try to do the same thing with God's temple in Jerusalem. And not falling in battle, it says he will stumble, and rather than being remembered as one of the greatest kings the Seleucids would ever have, his people turned on him in hatred, and a mob attacked him and put him to death, just like Scripture says. Now, here's the key why all of this is, all of this is building up to here. It says, then in his place, one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom, yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. Here's what happens after Antiochus the Great. Another ruler uh, steps on, steps onto the scene, Seleucus IV. He's going to send his tax collector, uh, Heliodorus, to collect money to pay the annual fine they have to pay to the Romans per the treaty. He's going to attempt to go down and plunder the temple in Jerusalem, and this is going to co- and, and ultimately Seleucus the Fourth only reigns for for a, a few years until he is poisoned by Heliodorus, his tax collector, and this sets the stage. Seleucus the Fourth has one son; his eldest son is a political hostage in Rome. His youngest son is only a small child. And in his place, verse 21, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. Who is this despicable person? Well, it's none other than, than the little horn of, of Daniel chapter 8. It's Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, who does not have a right to the throne. He is Seleucus' brother. He has no right to the throne. But seizing an opportunity, he will come from Greece, and he will engage in, in political intrigue and He will claim to be a guardian of the young son, Antiochus, who he will later have murdered. And then he will later have the one he assigned to murder Antiochus also put to death. He came at a time when no one expected it. People felt secure. He mastered the art of politics and won great support. Antiochus IV took the spot of king by knowing how to play the game. The prince of the covenant, in this time, he would ultimately do away with and have the high priest there at the temple of God put to death. The high priest did not support the Seleucid rule or the vicious program of Hellenization, the bringing of not just Greek language, but bring Greek culture, Greek religion, Greek philosophy that was set against God's word. He did not support it, and so Antiochus had the prince of the covenant, the high priest, Murdered in there, there's going to be an alliance he makes with, with one, of the, one of the rulers in Egypt where there's a civil war going on. It says, in a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm. He will accomplish what his fathers did, never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. And he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and courage against the kings of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not be devastated. He will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, and 
Many will fall down slain, but as for kings, their hearts will be intent on evil. They will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. So here's what goes on with Antiochus. What he's going to do is he is going to amass He's going to do what his fathers never did. Rather than amassing all of this wealth and power for himself, he knows how to play the game. He's going to amass the wealth. He's going to amass the power. He's going to distribute it out to the people. He's going to promise people appointments. He's going to win and garner support and and strengthen and bring a strength and power around him that his fathers never had. In the midst of this, he's going to say that he will help Ptolemy, Ptolemy VI, who's currently trying to be ousted by his brother Ptolemy VII, so he'll make an alliance with Ptolemy VI that both of them intend to break, hence sitting at the table and speaking lies to one another. Both of them are using the other to try to consolidate their power. He will stir up, he will rise an army, and he will go and attack Egypt several times. In this first campaign, he would, he would say he was helping Ptolemy VI to regain the, the throne. Uh, they go in, they, they, try, they fight, and in 169 it says, he will return to his man with much plunder, but his heart set against the Holy Covenant. In 169 BC, he will come back to Jerusalem. He will hear news that there are Jews rebelling against his rule in Jerusalem. He will come back, he will loot the temple, and he will put down the rebellion leading to a massacre recorded historically of 80,000 men, women, and children all under the help of the new, evil, Hellenistic, non-Levite high priest, Melanaeus. This is the first of the persecutions he will launch against the people of God. And then it says, at the appointed time, he will return. He will come into the south. He will go back and attack Egypt again. At this last time, it did not turn out the way it did before. For the ships of Katim, which is a reference to Rome, will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened. Here's what's going to happen. He's going to go try to conquer Egypt again. Rome's going to come against him, and, 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 and the way the story goes, Rome's going to come out. The Roman forces are going to meet him at Alexandria in Egypt. Gaius Linnaeus is going to meet Antiochus with a letter from the Roman Senate that says, cease and desist, or we will come to war with you. And Antiochus, who knows to play the game, says, let me think about it. Give me a day to meet with my advisors. And the Roman general whips out his sword, draws a circle in the sand around Antiochus and says, yes or no before you leave this circle. He knows he can't take on Rome. He goes back embarrassed, defeated, and this is what it says, he will become disheartened. He will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces will arise, desecrate the sanctuary, fortress and do away with regular sacrifice. They will set up the abomination of desolation. Here's what happens. He comes back in 167 BC, and initially he sends, he sends one of his chief collectors, Apollonius, who says he's coming in peace. And then while everybody's unsuspecting, on the Sabbath day while the Jews are worshiping, he comes in and attacks and massacres the people. Later that year, Antiochus will declare all Jewish religious practices, including circumcision, the owning of an Old Testament, sacrificing to God, observing any of the Old Testament feasts to be criminal punishment, criminal offenses punishable by death. And at the end of that year, he will enter into the temple of God and he will set up an altar to Zeus where he will sacrifice swine. 
the abomination of desolation. It says, by smooth words, he will turn the God, to godlessness those who act wickedly towards the covenant. It means that there are going to be some of the Jews who are so bought into what he's doing and bought into Hellenism, who don't feel the loyalty to God at his word, who say, yeah, you know what, sign us up. We'd rather have that than death. It says, but the people who know God, the people who actually know God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to many, yet they will fall by the sword and by flame. There would be people who would rise, who would refuse to bow down to the gods of Antiochus, who would refuse to give up being obedient to the Lord. There were people who would stand, many died. Some lived, they rose up, and we know this historically as the Maccabean Revolt. Many would fall by captivity, by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help. As they stood up, even as they were being killed, there were some that began to join their cause. Said many would join them in hypocrisy, meaning some of those Jews, as they begin to watch and see, ooh, we see things starting to go the other direction. Sure, we'll help. We're hypocrites, but we'll help you out. Says some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end, because it is still to come at the appointed time. It says that what is taking place was to refine and purify the people of God until the appointed time because the end was still yet to come. See, the people of God had gone back. We've mentioned this before. They made their way back to the promised land, but ultimately the true idolatry of their heart was never fully dealt with. They still struggled to accept God on God's terms. Now, some didn't, but many did, and many bought in to all these aspects of Hellenism, and they began to do and engage and live lifestyles and in ways and in, that were contrary to God's character, contrary to God's word. And it says, and it makes mention that as Antiochus comes in and does this, it has an act of purifying, of refining, of purging out that idolatry once more in a period of time we call the intertestamental period between uh, the ending of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And then with that, at verse 35, a jump is going to occur in verse 36, where from 36 forward, if we were to read it, I could not tell you when it's been fulfilled because it has yet to be fulfilled. Now, it's taken me almost 25 minutes to read through this passage and show you every single thing. Here's this angel telling Daniel, here's what's going to happen. And we have the benefit of history and me being able to tell you, and here is where every last one of those things happened. Approximately 135 prophecies fulfilled, every one of them according to the Word of God. It is actually this chapter that is at the heart of modern uh, critical theology that says, no, Daniel had to be written after the fact because no one could prophesy those things that precisely, no one but God. And church family, the reason this passage is here, the reason this passage, I'll be honest, I found debate. You read commentaries on this passage, pastors are debate whether you should preach through it or not because of how tricky it is. But it's God's Word, so I figured we need to preach through it. And here's what it means, church family, for knowing all things Foreknowing all things, God is sovereignly working out His redemptive plan over the course of history, plain and simple. 
Foreknowing all things, church family, understand the reason these can be told to Daniel decades and hundreds of years prior is because God knows all things. He knows all things. He is omniscient. He knows all things actual, and he knows all things possible. He knows what I will do. He knows what I could do, and he knows all of this at one single time. He knows what decisions will be made versus what decisions could be made. He declares what will happen before it happens because he knows what will happen. He does not speak from ignorance but absolute perfection. Now, we use the term foreknowledge, church family, because it, it's us trying to understand God. We use the term foreknowledge because God knows stuff that's yet to happen that we don't know. You don't know if lunch is going to taste good or not. God already does. You don't know if tomorrow a nuclear bomb will go off or not, but God already does. Now understand for God, when we try to understand God's foreknowledge and, and here in a moment His sovereignty, understand we are beings who only can exist at this precise second and that second's already passed. You now exist at this precise. We, we cannot conceptualize how to exist outside of time, past, present, future. God created time. That's why his name is I am. Not I was, not I will be. I am. I am in the past. I am in the present. I am in the future. I am because I exist outside of time. I hold time in my hands. So foreknowledge is not because God knows now it'll happen. Foreknowledge is our attempt to try to understand that God knows all things. God is not just foreknowing, but because He's foreknowing, it adds to why He's sovereign. By saying God is sovereign, what we mean is God is in control and He alone rules His creation. He acts in the history of man for His purposes. We see Him harden hearts and soften hearts, punish the wicked, sustain the righteous, See, he declares what will happen before it happens because he will make what he says happen. Now, to be sovereign demands that he has all knowledge. He has to know everything. If there's even one thing he doesn't know, then he can't be sovereign because that one thing he doesn't know could upset his rule. To be sovereign means he has to have all power. If someone could possibly have more power and resist him, then he could not rule. It also means he has to have absolute freedom to act. That's why I read the verse we did earlier. God doesn't ask anyone for permission. He doesn't seek counsel from anyone. Why? Because he is completely and totally free to do whatever he wants, whatever he wills. He has the knowledge of how to do it, the power of it to do it, and praise God that he is all good, so whatever he wills is only good, never bad. He's free to act. He is sovereign. His sovereignty means his word comes to pass. Everything God says will happen just as he says it. Oh, the joy when we come back next week and look at what he says is coming. The joy to know that if every one of these 135 prophecies were fulfilled to the T, then so will every other single word of prophecy he has given for you and me awaiting what's coming. It will be fulfilled to the T. Because he's sovereign, his word comes to pass. God's sovereignty means that his word comes to pass. God's sovereignty means the kingdoms of men fall no matter how glorious they appear. You may have lost track, but four different times referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, who's the most wicked ruler the Jews had seen to that point in history. It's made mention of appointed time, 
meaning that as bad as Antiochus was, he could never go beyond what God would allow. 10 times throughout those 35 verses, the text refers to the frustration and the ending of kings, of kings' plans. It refers to kings falling at the height of their power. Understand when we read these, king of the north, king of the south, Ptolemy this, Antiochus this, understand these are the Roosevelt's, the Kennedy's, the Bushes, the Eisenhower's, the Gorbachev's, the Stalin's, the Hitler's, the Putin's of their day. These are the most powerful men in the world and their plans routinely fall and are frustrated because they are not sovereign, God is. Over the course of history, God knows all things and sovereignly rules. Over the course of history, church family, God is acting. He is actively working in our world. His plan is one that involves humans. It's for the good of humanity. He is not somehow far off. He didn't only work like this in Bible times. He's actively working like this in our day. Now, we may not know all that he's up to, but it doesn't mean he's not up to it. In fact, our job isn't to know what all he's up to. Our job is to know and love him. And he will make sure we know what he's up to for what we need to know so that we know and love him. He is at work. Oh, if we could only, who knows what things are written in his book of truth. Remember that from last week? God's written that. What things are written in the book of truth about all the craziness we see today. If only we had God's perspective. We don't have God's perspective, but we do have a relationship with him. And he'll make sure we know what we need to know. He's working in the course of history to accomplish his his redemptive plan. His purpose, church family, is the salvation of men and women. It's the restoration of image bearers to himself. Once we're justified, his purpose is to actively refine, purify, and purge sinfulness from his people as he prepares us for his glory and all the glory he has planned and declared for us. His heart is for every nation, tongue, tribe. His great commission and his cultural mandate should bind our lives for our purposes. A.W. Tozer said, we know that God will fulfill all his promises to the prophets. We know that sinners will someday be cleansed off the earth. We know that a ransomed company will enter into the joy of God and that the righteous will shine forth in the kingdom of their Father. We know that God's perfections will yet receive universal acclamation, that all created intelligence will own Jesus Christ, Lord, to the glory of God the Father, that every knee will bow and tongue will confess, that this present and perfect order will be done away with and a new heaven and a new earth will be established forever. There's a lot we don't know, church, but there's that which we do know. Every last drop of that is true and will come to pass because God foreknows all things and is sovereign and will bring it to pass. So how do we understand and put this together? So I want to be clear today. We've mentioned this all throughout Daniel, but I want to be clear so we understand it. If God knows all things and and is sovereign, does that somehow mean life is fatalistic? Will all this stuff happen? Because God said it would happen, meaning that there was no other choice. There was, humans have no real choice. And the answer is no. History doesn't come to pass because of some kind of warped form of religious fatalism where you and I have no choice. Listen, God who is sovereign is the sovereign creator of humans. We alone are made in the image of God, and if we're in the image of God, we're not automatonic robots because God is not an automatonic robot. Now, we don't have the full free will that God has. God can make anything that he says. You can say right now, I'm going to fly, and I got news for you. You won't fly. (laughs) Not unless you got a little Cessna sitting outside, and that's what you mean. God has sovereignly decided when he made us that we would have a type of free will. It's a free will 
where we can make personal, meaning I make the decision, moral, meaning the decisions I make are either right or wrong, good or bad, consequential, the decisions I make for good or bad have actual consequences and impact on my life and the life of others, and responsible decisions, meaning that I will give account for the decisions I make. God sovereignly wills that you and I have moral choice, so when we choose as human beings to do what's right or do what's wrong, we actually fulfill His will in the sense that He made us with a type of free will. Now, I've confused the mess out of you, and I apologize, but I want to be clear. Here's what this is driving at. God is sovereign. No human being will be able to stop what God has planned and purposed. God is sovereign. He knows what will happen. He declares what will happen because He knows what will happen. He exists outside of time. He sees all past, present, and future right now at this very moment. But far from that truth making us go, well, what use is it to do anything? If he's already decided what my life's going to be, I'm just not going to do anything. Or, oh my goodness, he's already decided what my life's going to be, so it means it's his fault that I can't get past this addiction. It's his fault I can't come and do this. No, church family, if God's sovereignty paralyzes us, well, I don't know, should I marry this person? Should I take this job? Should I, I don't want to mess anything up. If it paralyzes us or it excuses our laziness, then we do not understand His sovereignty. If we understand His sovereignty, it should enliven us, encourage us, embolden us to love and live with all of our might for His glory. A.W. Tozer described it this way, God's sovereignty is like this. If we are all to get on a boat right now, God's sovereignty means He's the captain at the helm of that boat. If He says the boat's going to Liverpool, guess where the boat's going? Liverpool. Now, you and I, we have freedom on that boat. We can play in the pool. We can go on that water slide. We can eat however much ice cream and food they're going to put out in that ship. We can lounge on the chairs. We can fellowship with each other, or we can be really nasty and ugly. We have a kind of freedom to make choices on that ship, but it does not change the fact that that ship is going to Liverpool, and when that ship gets to Liverpool, we will give an account for the decisions we made on that ship. That is God's sovereignty and man's free will, not incompatible, but both together. Church family, when we understand this, God has sovereign plan for our lives. Most of it's revealed in His Word. And that which is not revealed in His Word, who should I marry, what, should I, what job should I take, He gives us the means to know. We submit to Him, we seek Him in love, we trust Him in faith, resting on His Word, we obey what He says. Church family, if we understand this, it emboldens us to lay down our idols, to lay down our doubts, and to follow Him at His Word. Tozer also said, God is on the winning side and cannot lose. Whoever's on the other side is on the losing side and cannot win. There is freedom to choose what side we will be on, but no freedom to negotiate the results of the choice we make. By the mercy of God, we can repent this side of heaven from a wrong choice. We all must choose whether we will obey the gospel or turn away in unbelief and reject its authority. The choice is our own, but the consequences have already been determined by the sovereign will of God, and from that there is no appeal. Understand today in this room, church family, there are some of us maybe in this room or online, you have never actually come to know Jesus Christ personally by grace through faith. I've got news. Works, family, Bible reading, church attendance will not save you. You were not born into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You're born in rebellion and sin. 
The gospel message is that Jesus came, he lived, he died, he raised on your behalf. You will give account for that decision. He will not force you to believe. That's your choice. But understand, that's not my religious spin on what Scripture says. That's what God's Word says. You either know Him by grace through faith, or you will not know Him and stand in your sin. You will either be found in Christ, saved by grace through faith, or you will be found accountable with your own sin. His word will come to pass. Can I encourage you? If you don't know him, may today be the day. Brothers and sisters, those of us in Christ, listen, his word will come to pass. Which means we have to be people whose lives are marked by obedience and faithfulness and dependence upon him for who he actually is based on what he says, not what is popular in culture nor twisted by internet preachers. Why? Because if God says this is sin and this will bring destruction, can I tell you, no matter how much culture applauds you and no matter how satisfying it may feel for a while, what God says is sin is sin and it will lead to ruin. Can I equally tell you when God says, follow me though it may be costly, it will be costly and he will fulfill every last promise he makes to us as his people to sustain us by his grace, to flood us with his joy, and to enable us to shine with a bold witness in our very normal, average, everyday lives for his glory until he returns. Amen. The, qu the question for us today is really simple. Do we trust his word, yes or no? Let's pray. Jesus, your word is true. And so, God, may we wrestle today with who you are. And you don't leave us in the dark about who you are. You tell us who you are. Our opinions don't get to decide who you are. Our fears don't get to decide who you are. Oh, the joy of just receiving and believing and resting upon your good and faithful word. You who are faithful and true. Lord, you know where everybody's at. You know how we need to respond. I lay us in your hands. May we be found responsive to you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.